This morning's text is taken from the book of First Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers might not be hindered. This is a text about women of valor for non-promise keepers. Women of valor for non-promise keepers. You can see what I mean by a non-promise keeper in verse 1. Peter talks about women who are married to men who are disobedient to the word, or the NIV, disbelieving, unbelieving in the word. If you're disobedient to the word, you're clearly not a promise keeper. And you can see what I mean about women of valor. If you look at verse 6 at the end, where it says these women are daughters of Abraham if they're not frightened by any fear. It's a woman of valor, not frightened by any fear. She conquers fear. So it's a text about women of valor for non-promise keepers. Now, most of you know where I'm getting the term non-promise keepers, okay? Promise keepers today, in our context, has a whole new meaning because of the ministry of the promise keepers and the book now, Seven Promises of a Promise Keeper, and 250,000 men this past summer who in, what, six locations gathered together to worship God and to recommit themselves to being what Christian men are supposed to be. I don't mean that an unbeliever can't keep a promise. Promise keeper is a technical term now. Men who are committed to be what Christian men are supposed to be. Let me read you the seven promises in case you haven't heard them. Number one, this is what many of men, tens of thousands of men this summer, signed a piece of paper that said we engage or commit to be this kind of man. One, to honor Jesus Christ through worship, prayer, and obedience to God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Two, to pursue vital relationships with a few other men, understanding that we need brothers to help us keep our promises. Three, to practice spiritual, moral, ethical, and sexual purity. Four, to build strong marriages and families through love, protection, and biblical values. 
Five, to support the mission of the church by honoring and praying for our pastor and by actively giving time and resources. Six, to reach beyond any racial or denominational barriers to demonstrate the power of biblical unity. And seven, to influence our world, being obedient to the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. Those are great promises. Those are clearly solid, biblical commitments. I would think it would be a, a good thing to be married to a man like that. I would think it would be great to be a single man or woman in a church filled with men like that. But uh, the Bible is real realistic, and it knows that many women are not married to men like that. They are married to non-promise keepers. You know, I mean, this is no surprise, is it, that, that as the kingdom, the power of the kingdom moves through the world, converting people from rebellion and unbelief into submission and faith, it doesn't always do that a couple at a time. Sometimes it splits a couple right in half. I mean, Jesus said that. He said, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? No, but division. For from now on, in a household of five, there will be divided three against two and two against three. And Peter now says, in the division of three against two and two against three, sometimes the wife is in the three and the husband is in the two. And that's what this text is about. How then shall I live if my house is divided? It's a real important text. However... 90% of the people in this room are not married to non-promise keepers. Number one, because so many are not married, period. Number two, because you're men, half of you. And number three, because a lot of women are married to promise keepers. So, you've got a little group of people in this room right now. There are some, probably more than I know, who are married to non-promise keepers. And my question, as I am a preacher who wants to fold all of you into the Word is, do you just check out right now, you 90%, and say, okay, go ahead and talk to the couple dozen women out there who are now or might someday be married to a non-promise keeper? And the answer to that is, don't tune out. Because when Peter wrote these seven verses, I'm sure he did not want, when they were read, for the rest of the churches in Asia and around to tune out. And I think that's why he wrote them the way he wrote them, Namely, he gave very specific direction or admonition to these women who are married to non-promise keepers. But the way he described the foundation of their lives that sustains them is such that it applies much more widely than just to those women. And so I want to address a word to those women and then go underneath to the foundations and hopefully show all of you that whatever relationships you're in, and all of us relate to non-promise keepers. We all love a non-promise keeper. 
sister, brother, uncle, father, colleague, neighbor. We care about a non-promise keeper. We must live with him or her and get along and hopefully win, as verse 1 says. And this text is relevant for all of us, therefore, if we care about non-promise keepers. But let me go straight to what the text is dealing with most immediately, namely the women among us who are married to non-promise keepers. Peter says in verse 1, very clearly, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that whether any of them are disobedient to the word... That little phrase, disobedient to the word, by the way, does not mean Christians who don't live up to what they should be. It means unbelievers. You can see that back in chapter 2, verse 8, where the very same phrase is used. But in verse 7, they are called those who do not believe, or those who disbelieve. Same thing in chapter 4, verse 17. Same thing in chapter 1, verse 23. Disobeying the word in 1 Peter means disobeying the gospel and not believing it. Now, it has relevance to husbands and wives who let their spouses down in various ways, but that's not the main focus of the text. So we're talking about a wife who's married to an unbeliever here, and he says to her, be submissive to your husband. And then in verse 5, he says it again. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So he reaches back a couple of thousand years outside of his own culture to give an example of holy women of old who lived this way. Now, it's a great sadness today that the complementary differences between manhood and womanhood, headship for men in the home and, and submission for women in the home, that these things are despised by and large in our culture. Or uh, if a man or woman doesn't despise them, they tremble at the thought of mentioning the very words, lest they be called all kinds of ugly names. That's a great sadness, because the Bible is a book of love sent from God to man for our welfare, and it does not commend obscenities or ugliness or destruction. It's a sadness that these things are written off as first century cultural leftovers that have no relevance for today. It's a sad thing that they are distorted, abused, and misused. I had a man in my office one time who actually told me that the meaning of submission is that his wife should get permission for him to move from one room to the other in the house, including the bathroom. Well, that's, that's a great evil, which is one of the reasons why the pendulum swings like it does in total rejection or crazy abuses. The truth does lie between the truth of throwing away this text as the first century leftover and that kind of ridiculous control. And I think this text is beautifully designed to help us find that middle ground of what the relationship is supposed to be. And let me, let me just show you what I think submission 
for this wife married to a non-promise keeper will look like. Just taking it from the text. Let me give you, first of all, six things that submission is not. And this will help, I hope, just clear the air in a significant way so that we don't carry with us the kinds of abuses we may have heard of or experienced in the past and bring into our own lives. Number one, submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Now, you can see that right here in verse one. She is a Christian. He is not a Christian. That is about as significant a disagreement as you can have. They don't come any more significant. There isn't any bigger issue in the world than whether Jesus is Lord. And they don't agree on it. Peter calls this wife to submission, assuming she will not submit to her husband's ideas about the most important thing in the world, God. So there's lesson number one. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband thinks. Number two. Submission does not mean leaving your mind or your will at the wedding altar. It's not the inability to think for yourself as a woman or to will for yourself. Here in this text, now look at her. Here's a woman who has heard the gospel. She's thought about it. Her heart has been touched by the beauty of Christ and her will has been taken captive by the truthfulness and winsomeness and trustworthiness of the Jesus she has seen in the gospel. She has reflected and she has chosen for him. And her husband has also heard the gospel. I think that's the reason Peter uses the phrase disobedient to the gospel or to the word, word. He's heard it. They probably were together when the evangelist spoke. I think he also says it that way because he says you can win him without a word. He's heard the word. And he thought about it. And his heart didn't open to it. And he did not choose for it. He chose against it. So here you have a a thinking, assessing, willing woman and a thinking, assessing, willing man. And they go just like that when the big issue comes. And as Peter calls her to submission, he does not nullify any of that, but encourages her to stand by it. Number three. Submission does not mean avoiding efforts to change your husband. The whole point of this text is, how then shall a wife change her husband? Isn't that amazing? If we avoided the context... If you didn't care about what the context said, when it says, be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them is disobedient to the word, they may be changed. 
One over to Christ. The most profound change in the universe is when a human being passes from death to life. From spiritual deadness to spiritual aliveness. And this text is about how to help that change happen. If you didn't care about the context, you might say, well, submission surely must mean that when you enter into a relationship, you take what you get and you leave it as it is, and you don't think of any way by which you might bring about change in the other. But if you care about the context, you can't say that, because here's a woman being commended by the authority of the apostle, so live as to win him, win him, win him. That's really profound change. That's great influence. It's not wrong to have influence over your husband. Number four, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband above the will of Christ. So here's a woman who's been called to be a follower of Jesus now. She's a follower of Jesus. First, before and above being a follower of her husband. When it says down there that uh, in verse 6, that Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. That's Lord with a little L, a real little L. It's like Sir. With a little s. And the obedience, and I will not cancel that out, but I will put it under all these contextual insights. The obedience there is based on and underneath and through the sieve of obedience to the Lord with a capital L. She has a Lord with a capital L. He is first. He is foremost, he governs, he guides, she follows him. So where there is ever a, a lord or a sir or a demeanor of honor and submission, it's with a little L. And the obedience is passed through the filter of the lordship with a capital L of Jesus. Number five. Submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal, spiritual strength from her husband. A good, I don't want to be misunderstood here. A good husband, a good promise keeper, will be a tower of strength for his wife. He will try to be. He will try to be one through whom the grace of God is extended to his whole family and from whom she can draw strength. Approximately. But this woman in this text gets her strength, her depth, her hope from God. Verse 5 says that she's like the holy women of old who hoped in God. When her husband is no strength for her, she is not bereft of strength because she hopes in God. 
Her arms are outstretched to God and her heart is open to God and God is an inexhaustible fountain of love and acceptance and security and intimacy. This text is not about how you get strength from a husband, but how you get strength for a husband. For his being won over by your fearless, pure, reverent, tranquil, peaceful hope in God. Women of valor. Number six. Submission does not mean that a wife is to act out of Fear. Again, verse 6 at the end. You have become Sarah's children if you do what's right without being frightened by any fear, which means whatever submission means, it is not a cowering, coerced, fearful act. It is an act of freedom that is fearless because it's coming from strength which flows from hope in God. Now, those are six things that submission is not. So let me just ask briefly then, what positively can we say? Most people are good today at telling us what submission is not. Everybody talks about what submission is not. What is it? Can we say something positive that doesn't chase everybody away? Not that chasing people away is the final criterion of error. But my experience with Noel, and of everybody I have a chance to talk to personally about specific issues, is almost always positive about this. Here's what I would say positively. What Peter is calling for from wives married to non-promise keepers and promise keepers is a disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. And those two words are very important, disposition and inclination. I use them because, as we've seen, to have Jesus as your Lord relativizes the authority of the husband. To have Jesus as your Lord relativizes the authority of the U.S. government and the police force and the army. To have Jesus as Lord relativizes the authority of government and parents and pastors. Once Jesus has become the Lord with a capital L, all other kinds of authority, and believe me, they are real and they are important and they are precious. No society can live without authority structures. But they are relativized by the super authority of Jesus Christ. He is calling her to have an attitude or a disposition or an inclination. Let me put words in her mouth. If this spirit is upon her, this is the way I think a wife will talk. I think she will say to her husband, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead in love. I don't flourish as well when you are passive 
And I have to make sure that the family is working. It grieves me, however, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and think that I'm going to go with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead. But I can't follow you into sin. As much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage, Christ is my king. That's the mission. And it is not groveling. It is not mindless. It is not slavish. It is not coerced. It is spoken from a heart of valor, if it is spoken well. Now, let's draw things to a close here by stepping back and looking at the foundation for this. What I've said so far is, in my mind, not the most important thing to say. The most important thing to say is, where does a woman get this kind of valor, strength, depth of character? And where do the rest of us get it for our relationships with non-promise keepers? And there are two or three things I want to point out. One, the source of her strength is not in herself, but in God. Verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God, there's the key phrase, circle that in your Bible, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. The secret of flourishing as a human being in relationships that are hard, and we all have hard relationships, the secret of flourishing in relationships that are hard is not to get your strength from those relationships. But from God, that's the secret. So that you bring strength to the relationship, for the relationship, rather than being a depleted person who must drink all of its strength from the relationship. And thus, if both are going down, they both go down. The secret is to hope in God. Number two. Let your hope in God then go to work on your inner being to produce a gentle, quiet, fearless person. The inner person. Gentle, quiet, fearlessness will look different in men and women, but it will be there in men and women. Men will be gentle. Men will be tranquil. Men will be fearless. Women will be gentle. Women will be tranquil. Women will be fearless. But there is a manhood, womanhood form of this, especially in a marriage that will shake out in different ways. But I want all of you to hear this call right now to let hope in God go down into the inner being and create fearlessness before all circumstances because you're so secure in God. And that fearlessness begins to ripple out in a kind of tranquility and quietness and gentleness that doesn't need to be all frenzied and all controlling, but relaxed. So that people take strength from being around you rather than feeling you drawing on them all the time. I get this from verses 3 and 4. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses... But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle, quiet or tranquil spirit 
which is precious in the sight of God. In other words, when you hope in God, you're not all caught up with earrings, neither men or women. You're not all caught up with, my goodness, classes begin on Tuesday. Who do I wear? What's everybody else going to be wearing? It's no big deal. Really, teenagers, kids, preschool, whatever, I don't know where it's happening. But all these ads come through my mail now, and you open the first thing you see is some kid going, you know, like this, and he's got the right bagginess, just the right, everything's just right. And I can imagine as kids look at that and say, I don't have any jeans like that. Look, kids, you can do this. You can hope in God. You can be your own person. You can start the style. <laughs> you can start the slogan. You don't have to be a carbon copy of this secular world. You can be secure in the love of the Almighty for you. It is a glorious way to live. Who wants to be a slave? A slave to fashion. My goodness. Nobody wants to live that way. And yet we give into it so quick. And all of us adults know this insidious ways it works on us too. So my second foundational point for all of us is let the hope in God come on in. Let it create a fearlessness and security and, and beautiful serenity and tranquility and quietness that doesn't get all worked up about clothes and style and makeup and earrings and fashion and the outer person. Devote your energies to becoming a kind of character. And finally, number three, people who hope in God and become deep, tranquil, strong, fearless people will, little by little, doesn't happen overnight, take on a behavior that's described in verses one and two. An outward behavior now comes from this inner person. You see that? So that, I mean, verse one, so that they may, may be won over without a word, by the behavior. Here's her inner person of strength and, and serenity and tranquility and fearlessness coming out in a kind of behavior of their wives. Now, verse 2 gives us a little glimpse. As they observe your chaste or pure and reverent or respectful behavior. So there's a kind of servanthood that emerges from this inner quality of person that becomes winsome. That's what Peter's talking about. So let me, let me wrap it all up and we'll pray. Move on to the bridge. Whether you're married or single, old or young, married to a promise keeper or a non-promise keeper, the word of the Lord to you this morning is number one, don't get your strength from those relationships. Hope in God for love. Hope in God for acceptance. Hope in God for security. Hope in God for strength. And then let that hope and all of that relation to God go down into the inner person and begin to take a person just filled with anxieties and filled with bad memories and, and all kinds of dysfunctions and wounds from the past, let that hope, little by little, shape into being a fearless, hope-filled, tranquil, deep, 
strong, quiet woman of valor or man of valor. And then, thirdly, let that begin to spill over into a behavior that is chaste and pure and respectful and servant-like and, God, may it happen, winsome. Let's be a winsome people so that if by any means we might win some to the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, as we go to our Sunday school or linger to worship or come to the front and pray with the prayer team, oh, Father, I pray that your people now would hope in you. Some of them are almost depleted this morning because the relationships are so hard. I pray for the gift of hope in their lives. And would you send that hope down now to do the work of peace-giving, fearlessness-giving, purity-giving, tranquility-creating. And would you this week let it begin to spill over for the relationship, even if they get nothing from the relationship. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.